winter is coming. You're listening to The Watchers of Westeros. I am the king! A Game of Thrones podcast. When you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. Fire cannot kill a dragon. Lion doesn't concern himself with the opinions of a sheep. But also heard the phrase, a Lannister always pays his debt. For the night is dark and full of terror. What good is power if you cannot protect the ones you love? We can avenge them. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Watchers of Westeros. You are in the right place if you want some Game of Thrones talk. We are back this week. We are talking about the second half of season two. That's episodes six through ten. Some big things happened. The Battle of Blackwater Bay. It's going to be huge. We're going to get into all of that right now. But first, introductions are in order. My name is Dominic, and joining me, as he always does, is my good friend and co-host, Kieran. Kieran, how are you doing today? I am doing fantastic. The sun is shining on a lovely afternoon here in Exeter, and I am buzzing to talk about some Game of Thrones. I mean, you know, I wouldn't say that necessarily the weather here in Exeter reflects the mood in these five episodes that we're about to discuss, but um, it's definitely... We keep saying this every show, but the stakes are being raised, and a lot happens in these episodes, particularly concentrated of course on king's landing but winterfell plays a a prominent and a sad sadly um it's final moments really in the series (laughs) as it as it comes to a a, quite a disheartening end to say the least a tragic end but how are you doing today dominic on this bright and early morning for yourself again early morning yeah morning recording seems to be the new new thing for this show for me at least but yeah i i'm doing well you know the uh, the weather here seems to reflect beyond the wall there's a lot of snow (laughs) and it's cold (laughs) and uh, not quite at the point where we have to burn we have to burn shit yet but at least uh we're you know it's 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 cold and so i'm I'm not looking forward to going out just yet uh but we got plenty Plenty to discuss that'll that'll keep you warm for the next next who knows how long. Uh, let's start off with a quick recap of episodes six through ten. There, on that mountain, there's a fire. I need to move fast and silent. I'll do it. Leave him to it. I've yielded Winterfell to Prince Theon. Betray me, and you will wish you hadn't. You saved me, and the two I was with. Speak three names. I can name anyone, and you'll kill him. A man has said. We've come to a dangerous place. My sister wants to hurt me. She can't know about you. Who are you? I'm Shame Lady, your new handmaiden. I didn't know I needed a new handmaiden. Do you think the path from poverty to wealth is always honorable? Where are they? Where? Dragons! You let a halfwit escape with a cripple, and Rickon too, the little one. I told you what would happen if you served me loyally, and what would happen if you did not. Should have took me while you had the chance. Got as far as the farm, then doubled back. Must have been the farmers, boys. Killed them, burned them, and passed them off as little lots. 
You have my dragons. I will take you to the house of the Undying, where I have put them. The Kingslayer, he escaped in the night. How? Sansa and Arya are captives in King's Landing. Returning him to May by life of my children. I don't want to marry the Frey girl. I don't want you to marry her. Walder Frey is a dangerous man to cross. I love her. I am hers. And she is mine. A girl owes one more name. Jack and Hagar. A girl gives a man his own name. I'll name it if you help me and my friends escape. When I sit the Iron Throne, you'll be my hand. I'll try to serve you well. I expect you'll be the first crabber's son to wear the badge. Mudgate. That's where he'll land. And if Stannis does attack the Mudgate, what is our plan? <laughs> Coming ashore. There's too many. I command you to go back out there and fight. The battle is over. We have won. Without you, this city faced certain defeat. The king won't give you any honors that we will not forget. Solara Shara. I will gladly wed your sweet sister. He's not marrying me. He'll let you go home. Joffrey's not the sort of boy who gives away his toys. You said you saw my victory in the flames. This war has just begun. You will be king. We died today, brothers. Let's go home. I burned it down. Everything. Not everything. Not you. But they may come back. Go north. To the wall. To John. Lance is going to march on the wall. One brother inside his army be worth a thousand fighting against him. They'll never trust me. They might. If you do what needs to be done. What? Long John Snow. Time to meet the king beyond the wall. Welcome home, Daenerys Dornborn. My home is across the sea where my people are waiting. We'll be waiting a long time. Dracarys. All right. And Kieran, do you have episode descriptions for us this week? I do indeed, Dominic. Very short and concise this time. So episode six of season two is entitled The Old Gods and the New. Arya has a surprise visitor. Danny vows to take what is hers, whilst Joffrey meets his subjects and Corin Halfhand gives Jon a chance to prove himself. Episode seven of season two, entitled A Man Without Honour, Jamie meets a relative. Theon launches a hunt to find the Stark boys, and Danny receives an in- invitation from Zakos. And episode eight of season two is entitled "The Prince of Winterfell." Theon holds down the fort. Arya calls in her debt with Yakin. Rob is betrayed by his mother, and Stannis and Davos approach their destination. Episode nine, entitled "Blackwater." Tyrion and the Lannisters fight for their lives as Stannis' fleet assaults King's Landing. And finally, Season 2, Episode 10, is entitled Valar Morghulis. I think I pronounced that right, but um, people, please do comment if you think I haven't. <laughs> and finally, so in Episode 10, Arya receives a gift from Yakin. Danny goes to the House of the Undying, and Jon proves himself to the Wildlings. Yes, big things happening in these episodes. Of course, the the Battle of Blackwater Bay, as we mentioned, huge stuff. But also, 
big things going on for Jon Snow and, and Daenerys Targaryen also in these episodes and some interesting stuff with Arya and we'll, we'll get into all of that. But let's let's start in King's Landing or actually let's let's start with just overall impressions of these episodes. Kieran, what did you think of, of these episodes overall? I think that these episodes really showcased Game of Thrones in all its, its glory and splendor, to be honest. Everything mm-hmm. that fans are endeared to, really. I mean, the tone, I think, has shifted. It's so dark and quite haunting, I would say, the, particularly the events that take place in Winterfell. I mean, mm-hmm. we talk about, in the first season, this aura of optimism. The fact that we had these two benign characters, Ned Stark and King Robert Baratheon, and their friendship was binding the kingdoms together. And in season two, the previous five episodes, we see that starting to fall apart. And really, events start coming to a head at the end of season two. And we get a resolution, or at least we get, uh, I would say, yeah, we get a resolution to one of the storylines, at least, in terms of the Battle of King's Landing between Stannis Baratheon and the Lannisters. But it's really only come to a climax here, and and really it starts pushing towards the side of that. Like, things start going the Lannisters' way again. I mean, we've had that. We had the build-up, really, in those four uh, episodes before the Blackwater Bales. Or, or throughout season two, really, of you know the Lannisters are clearly they're outnumbered five to one in terms of numbers of men, ten to one in terms of the size of the fleet. Um, and it seems like it's going to be a foregone conclusion, but they managed to withstand the tide, as it were, of Stannis Baratheon's fleet and his forces. And then we have the accession of Tywin at the, at the end of these, becoming the Hand of the King. The Tyrells are now invited to be the new... Well, Marjorie is to become the new queen, so they forged their alliances with the Lannisters. And it seems as though the power of the Lannisters on King's Landing and the Seven Kingdoms really has been cemented by the end of these episodes. But I'll throw it to you now, Dominic, initial thoughts on episodes six through ten of season two. Yeah, you meant you made a good point there about the uh, about the Lannisters, how everything seemed to kind of they were kind of the underdogs almost in the in the second half of the season, which is which is strange to think about, especially when you look back at season one and and and, and then to see them as as the underdogs. And then you know when Tywin bursts into the uh, the throne room there at the end of, of of episode nine, at the end of the battle, the music is almost heroic. It's almost like the hero has won the battle. It, it was it was strange to look at it that way. Um, but yeah, there there was some really interesting things going on. There's uh, really interesting stuff going on with with Sansa Stark and and, and I know people have have their issues with her character but there's some really interesting things going on between her and and Cersei and and, and Shay as well and there's also as you mentioned all, all kinds of uh, all kinds of stuff going on with with the Lannisters but also you know going stretching out a little bit with with Rob Stark and and his uh his breaking his oath to Walder Frey uh, and and as we mentioned, beyond the wall with with Jon Snow is his inability to kill Egret and and some really you know she begins to plant some ideas in his mind and you know we we begin to you know we have to see Jon Snow be tested you know have his loyalties tested which was 
which was very interesting to see. And and of course, uh, Danny with her with her side adventure almost, and she almost kind of, for lack of a better term, goes through a, a bit of a Jedi trial <laughs> in the uh, the House of the Undying. It, it was which was which was really interesting, and, and we'll get into all of those. But let let's uh, let's start in in King's Landing, and let's start with with Sansa and and, and Cersei because I thought they were very interesting in these episodes to watch their relationship because for the first bunch of episodes Cersei definitely you know she came across as as the evil queen you know she was she was manipulating Sansa and making everything go against this poor girl and in these episodes we almost start to see Cersei be a bit empathetic towards Sansa and is is this her kind of apologizing to Sansa for what she's about to put her through is it or is it her just sort of knowing what she's going to go th- go through and and feeling bad about it it's interesting that that, that scene in particular at the at the, the episode 9 of season 2 when they are in the um enclosure and with uh well that's Cersei and Sansa with all of the other hens as that's the term <laughs> that they like to use um, I think that it's it's interesting to see how Cersei really imparts her wisdom on Sansa, the the really, really the wisdom of being a good queen, mm-hmm. and you can see how Cersei has managed to sustain her position as queen regent, and how she was betrothed and married to Robert Baratheon for so long, in spite of the fact that he loathed her, as it were. She she recognizes how to play the game, and again we go back to that line where she she told Ned Stark in episode seven in the Game of Thrones, "You win or you die." Or you die. Um, another great another great moment as well, uh, alluding to that fact was when she spoke with Peter Baelish at the beginning of season two, mm-hmm. when they're having their jibe about power is knowledge, no power is power, um, and I think that you see that. I mean, she's not. She's clearly not naive enough to believe Sansa. I mean, yeah. Sansa's trying to play the game, but Cersei can see through it. You know, when she keeps saying, "You know, I'm I'm married to Joffrey. This is my home. I I pray for the king," and she's like, "Oh, don't be so stupid. Of course, I know that you don't." <laughs> yeah, and she says that the only thing you should protect are your children. Again, revealing her really overriding aim, and we see the love for her children is really what keeps her going even though she has to deal with this cruel, tyrannical son in Joffrey. I mean, you see how she, when she speaks to Tyrion, she says, this is the price that we pay because of what me and Jamie have done. Um, and I think that's quite, quite an interesting thing to say about, about her son. And even right at the death there, when it seems as though all is lost, hope is gone, she takes Tomlin to the throne room and is prepared to, to kill him, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously to give him the essence of nightshade to have a far more well a far more amicable death as it were less less torturous than it would be if Stannis Baratheon had found them for example and I think the way she imparts this to Sansa is just very very interesting really and I think that in hindsight Sansa does pick up a lot of what Cersei's talking about here. I think this is the start, really, of Sansa beginning to play the game. She's learning the tools of the trade, and who better to learn it from than someone as Machiavellian and devious, deceitful, cunning as Cersei. 
Yeah. So what did you make of that fact, the, the Cersei and Sansa dynamic in yeah. these episodes? Yeah, like I said, it was it was really interesting to watch because I think what we have is, is Cersei, she kind of recognizes what Sansa's going through because she went through basically the same thing. As you mentioned, she went through a, her, her marriage with, with Robert, who, like you said, loathed her. And I, I think it's pretty safe to say that, that Joffrey hates Sansa, you know, making her stare at her father's chopped off head and, you know, having her basically be beaten up in the in the throne room you know he clearly doesn't like her and i think there's also a bit of an acknowledgement from cersei in these episodes that joffrey is not the perfect king that he is really just a a horrible little child and we we start to see that in in these episodes it almost it almost seemed like there was kind of a bit of a joke that that was kind of the joke in king's landing amongst the the lannisters that you know Joffrey is is a horrible king and he's a horrible person and they almost seem to be willing to joke about it and just kind of let it slide and so I think this is this is a bit of an extension of that is that Cersei realizes what she's about to put this put this girl through and as a result she sort of begins to empathize with her and and pass on some some drunken advice to her in that in that scene you mentioned during the during the battle and you know we see that even though Sansa begins to learn how to play the game she's still far kinder than than Cersei you know she she gets the uh, the other other women to to sing the the hymn uh, in in that sequence and you know it, it does seem like she is going to take from both uh, you know both from Cersei and her own upbringing with with Ned to sort of begin to to like you said play the game properly uh but sticking with with sansa we also see her and and shay Tyrion's girlfriend shall we say um we see them interacting a lot together and, and shay seems to get very defensive of sansa is, is this more of just people realizing that that joffrey is horrible and that they should try to be as nice as possible to sansa or is or is there something deeper between those two I think there's genuine empathy between Shay and Sansa. I think she really builds a bond and and friendship with Sansa. Um, Shay does, and I think that's actually um, as a result of really Shay's character. I think that although she puts on this persona, obviously as um, as, as being a prostitute from the pleasure house, the it means you know they, she just serves and yeah. she only cares about the money side of things. But I think she generally does start caring for Sansa. I think that's epitomized in the scene. I think it's in episode seven after um, Sansa um, had to go or well, nearly got raped yeah. in the in the episode with those uh, when, when the when the Joffrey subjects rebelled pretty much <laughs> uh, open revolt yeah and uh, she was saved by the hound you know she has that dream she wakes up and then you know it shows that she's uh, she's now blossomed and she's ripe as it were I don't, it's not quite the right, it's not quite the right way to put it but you know um, it's quite a crude way to put it there but anyway it means that she's become a woman I think that's the point that I'm trying to make here and obviously when she bleeds for the first time, Shay walks in and the first thing they're trying to do, both of them, is get rid of the sheets, get rid of the evidence. And then when the handmaiden comes in and she's going to run off and tell the queen, Shay says, you will not tell the queen and draws a knife on her. And I think that goes to show that there's really this this bond that has been built between those two characters. And I think that the dynamics between those two really 
hyperextend in terms of that closeness by the time we get to season three, I think that Shay becomes a confidant to Sansa and she becomes an important figure, which I also think is good for Shay's character because otherwise it can get a little bit dull in a for or her character can get seem seemingly be a bit um, dull in terms of what she actually does here because she's only betrothed to Tyrion and it gives her that extra added side to her character development which is very important for this show. I think it shows that each character has um, their own personality traits which are quite inter- which are quite interesting to consider and I think uh, the dynamics between Sansa and Shay in particular exemplify that. So I'll throw it over to you then Dominic, Shay and Sansa. I mean what, what would you say that ultimately Shay is there looking out for Sansa, or you know, like you said, is it just because she's been put in this position by Tyrion that she just decides that you know I've, I've got to hide, as it were, and conceal my identity? Yeah, I think she she genuinely cares for Sansa, but I think it's it's more out of fact out of the fact that everybody realizes what a monster Joffrey is and how horrible he is to her and so you see characters like Shay and, and Tyrion and even even the Hound to a certain extent they start to be a, a, a lot kinder to her you know they, they do seem mm. you know the Hound maybe not so much but you know he's at least protective of her and they, they sort of begin to protect her in ways in the ways that they can obviously they can't stop Joffrey or else they'll lose their head um, and and so they they try to be as as kind and helpful to her as possible. And I think, you know, we, Shay's past is a is a mystery, but you can probably bet that that she was hurt by someone in her past. And as a result, she's trying to help Sansa in any way she can. And that includes, you know, keeping her out of harm's way when it comes to Joffrey and the Queen. And so she's willing to to do whatever it takes because, well, she, she knows what Joffrey is and she probably knows what it's like to suffer in, in those types of situations. Yeah, Um, absolutely. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about the battle. Now the the big epic war. This is, this is more what I was expecting when, when started watching a show called game of Thrones was, was every week there were going to be battles like this and then turned out to be, be a lot more politics and stuff, which turned out to be, well, probably a lot more interesting (laughs) uh, most weeks. Uh, But this, this battle, you know, we've, we've built, been building up to this all season. Just, just over your overall thoughts on the battle, you know, the, with, with everything that, that Tyrion did, and of course, Joffrey leaving. I, did 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 the right side win the battle? I mean, did did the more powerful side win, or did Stannis overplay his hand? I mean, how how did how do you think this this all played out? How do you think we wound up with the uh, result we got? I think that there are two main elements to this side, really, and. As as we said before, um, in in the initial impressions section of the show, it seemed that the Lannisters were the underdogs, like you said. Mm-hmm. You know, they were outnumbered by manpower and in terms of the size of the fleet, the naval fleet as well. How are they going to curb this besiegement of King's Landing? And I think one of those main elements was Tyrion. Tyrion was really the principal player that saved the city. I don't think anybody else would have done it. And, and it's funny, actually, that Lord Varys predicts as much in that episode at the beginning when Podrick's putting on Tyrion's armour. He says, you know, you are the only man capable of saving this city. 
because you know you look at the other people there. Um, you got Lancel Lannister, who's a coward, really. Yep. You know he get um, granted. Uh, Seems a bit harsh, but I say he got shot with an arrow and then he leaves. I mean, granted, <laughs> probably I would do something similar. Yeah, but at the same time, you know, it's, he's not brave and courageous. He's not. He's not doing what Boromir did in Lord of the Rings. You know, he took three arrows and he was still going. <laughs> um, whereas Lancelot Lannister gets one and then runs to the Queen. Yeah, the Hounds. He's scared of fire, so he runs away. Joffrey, he departs as well, and you're suddenly thinking, hang on a minute, who's left? Yeah. Um, and you've got Tyrion there, who who really does save Dane. Don't forget Bronn as well, he's not really in a battlefield, because he's the one on that rock who was shooting the arrow down for the wildfire. So it really is just Tyrion at the moment. And, you know, that that was quite a, a, a neat idea, really, the, the wildfire aspect. And I have to say, visually... That was an incredible moment, wasn't it? When you mm-hmm. see the the ships all just burst into flames, really that explosion, <laughs> and you can really get that vibe. I mean, it was it was very graphic the way it was projected, but it was very effectively projected because you really could see the really the ferocity and the brutality of uh, of the wildfires effect. Really, when you got those people burning and charred chalked faces really it was just uh, a quite an incredible incredible scene and i think the second one of course was the reinforcements by tywin because you obviously have that scene in episode eight when really you it's alluding to the fact that you know tywin and the Lannisters are going to head to castle rock because they keep talking about well you know the wolf's on uh, on the move um he may be looking to attack castle rock um and that's our home we have to defend that mm-hmm. but they don't they side with the Tyrells, which was bartered for by Littlefinger, and they saved the day. So I think it was a combination of those two main factors that really saved the day. Because on paper, um, it's, you know, you look at it and you think, well, of course Stannis is going to win. It's a foregone conclusion, but it wasn't. Mm-hmm. And I think that it really played out that way. Um, you know, it was executed very effectively the way that they exhibited it. Well, I'll throw it to you then. What did you What did you make of the outcome, and what do you think were the main factors determining the final result? Yeah, well, I I think maybe it, I think you're absolutely right that that Tyrion and and Tywin were were both key factors. I also wonder if maybe Stannis got a little too overconfident. I mean, you know, he made it up on the onto the wall, uh, on the walls of King's Landing. Uh, but then he was—he was basically by himself up there, you know. He was—he had a couple of guys with him, and then he—he he was basically had to be dragged off. And you know, I, I think he may have—he may have almost overplayed his hand. He wasn't—he wasn't fully prepared for what could have happened. And, and you know, he—he he went in, you know, with with all these ships and all these men, and expecting to really—you can probably bet he expected to to win pretty easily. And you know, he makes it up over the wall, and then. You know, then he his men are kind of left on their own, and well, then Tyrion and Tywin show up, and that's the end of them. And he's they're all forced to retreat. So I, I do wonder if if Stannis maybe overplayed his hand a, a little bit in in this battle, and maybe didn't fully think through what could happen. But like you said, it was set up where uh, you know the audience wasn't expecting Tywin to show up, so you can probably bet that the characters weren't expecting him to show up either. So. Yeah, but yeah, it was like you said. It was just a, a visually a fascinating sequence to watch with with the, with the wildfire and and just everything going on on the beach and 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 seeing seeing a Tyrion and and of course the Hound, you know, finally finally uh, abandoning Joffrey. You know, 
he gives up on uh, gives up on his king, and that was I'll, I'll be honest that was, that was almost more surprising to me than 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 Tywin than Tywin's arrival because you know the Hound had really been set up as a as a bad guy for most of the show, and to all of a sudden have him basically be the only person to do what you kind of wish all the other characters would do, which is just abandon Joffrey. It was, was very surprising and, and was, you know, it was, it was not definitely not something I saw coming. And so I, I, I think that was a, a very interesting choice as well by the, uh, by the writers. Uh, but let's, let's move on a little bit. Let's, we've been talking about Tywin and we've been talking about Sansa, Sansa Stark. Let's talk about Tywin and Arya because they have some very interesting scenes together in these episodes and you know, obviously, Arya learns a lot from Jack in in these episodes. But do you think she learned a bit from Tywin in terms of how to be ruthless? I think so. Yeah. I think that uh, those see the dynamics between those two characters, the synergy, I think, was very, very compelling and fascinating from the audience's perspective. Because I mean, you look at it on the surface, and you think. You know, you've got Arya Stark here and, and Tywin Lannister, polar opposites. Rob's at war with the Lannisters. She's clearly going to loathe him, and particularly with the conditions that really saw her enter into Harrenhal, you know, with Yoren yeah. killed off, then having to, you know, sit in that hut, that pen, waiting to be executed, pretty much. And then Tywin comes along and, and inadvertently is the saviour. And I think that What's in- interesting is the conversations those two characters have. They're actually more like-minded than than you actually realise. And that's more surprising, I would say, from the audience's perspective, based on Arya's upbringing. Um, as being the Starks, we always consider them to be noble and honourable. Um, and and she says things that are quite surprising. You know, for example, uh, you know when he says... Uh, well, Arya starts talking about the history of Westeros and uh, the Targaryens. And he says, you know, well, you know, shouldn't you be looking to be more of a handmaiden than a, a warrior and reading up on history? He was like, you know, that's what most girls do. And he says, well, yeah, she says, well, most girls are stupid. And then he, like, chuckles and says, you remind me of my daughter. And I think that's quite interesting to see, actually, there's more parallels, you could argue, between Arya and Cersei at this point than, say, Arya and Sansa. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I mean, you know, Tywin actually becomes quite endeared to that. He doesn't, you know, not so much so that he's prepared to, you know, take her with him, but, uh, you know, he he's generous enough to give her the food and he, he actually seems quite kind-hearted around her. I think he respects the fact that she is, uh, she, you know, she's smart, um, she's quite perceptive, and I think that Tywin recognises pretty early on that she's posing as a commoner. I mean, he's not well, too foolish enough to believe that. You know, when he says, like, you know, no commoner says, my lord, you have to say, my lord, if you want to do it properly, you know. So yeah. I think that, he, he, I mean, he knows something's up, but I think that it's just compelling their their interaction. But I'll let you jump You're, in. I think you yeah. want to weigh in on this. Well, I, I was just going to ask you, do you think do you think he knows who she is? No, 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 yeah. no, no. If he knew, he would not let her go. Um, and he, I mean, he would. That's why Arya was so keen to not serve Lord Baelish any of his wine or food out of fear of being recognised. Yeah, I think he knows something's up. I think it's more that he suspects that she's aligned with the North, and she's probably part of a highborn house. Mm. Uh, but he doesn't know it's the Starks. I mean, if it was the Starks. 
I mean, he's got. He's, I know Jamie Lannister is released. We know that from our perspective, but yeah. Tywin doesn't know that at, um, at least until next season. And so, to him, there's a trade-off there. There's an exchange, or at least there's some hostage there to keep. I don't think that he would just leave her in the presence of the Hound. Uh, not the Hound, even sorry. I the, mean the, the mountain. mountain. Yeah. Uh, because you know, she's so valuable. It's a valuable hostage. He would have brought her. Brought her with him to King's Landing, probably. Well, actually, I don't know. Maybe I'm not sure about that. I don't know if he necessarily <laughs> wants her to be killed off in battle. Yes. But anyway, I'll uh, throw it to you, though. I mean, what did you make of the interaction between Arya Stark and Tywin Lannister? Do you think there was a bond growing between those two? Do you think there's like-mindedness between those two characters? Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's definitely some like-mindedness going on there. I think the two characters are are a lot similar than you would initially think a lot more similar than you would initially think. I think that when you have Arya in these scenes, we're sort of seeing, you know, Arya's journey is we're sort of seeing her interact with various different people and what she learns from, from all these different people, you know, starting with, with the, with the, the guy from the night's watch who she was, she was with at the beginning of this season onto Jack and Agar and Tywin Lannister in the next season when she's, she's hanging out with the brotherhood. And there's, there's all this, there's all these different, people that she's going to learn from and and all of this is going to impact you know her ultimate her ultimate fate who she ultimately becomes and i think tywin inadvertently has a huge impact on someone who could cause him a lot of pain because you know she is she you know whether she will admit or not she's in a lot of pain over you know her father's father being killed i mean we saw that um in a a few episodes ago when she she couldn't sleep and so she's in this pain she's looking for a way to express that pain and she's finding that violence and Tywin is is one of sort of the most cunning and and violent characters on the show and so you know putting those two together she's he's definitely going to you know have an impact on her and she's going to uh, take what she learns with from her time with Tywin and and maybe not consciously but definitely inadvertently uh, use that to fight against uh, Fight against the fight against Tywin, basically, and and try and kill Joffrey and Cersei and 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 all the people that have caused her pain. And so, I mean, in spite of everything, though, Arya still wants to kill him. I oh, mean, yeah. don't get don't get that part wrong as oh, well. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. that's the name that she says to Yak and her guys. She says quickly, "Where is he? Where is he? I want to, you know, you need to kill Tywin now." He's yeah, because she thinks she's going to go and, and fight Rob. Yeah. So, of course, she wants to stop that the family connection element. But I do just think that, uh, as we both said, there's just certain traits that are quite similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's, it's an it's... on the surface you wouldn't necessarily recognise, but like as you said, initially you wouldn't think so. But towards the end, I think she picks up a lot from Tywin, particularly that ruthless side, as you said. Yeah, I, uh, and I don't think she's consciously thinking, "Oh, well, I can learn from this guy," and I don't think he's necessarily consciously thinking, "Oh, I can impact this girl." And I think that what just basically happens is. You you put the two of them in a room together for long enough, and they wind up just having a, an impact on each other in a maybe on a sort of a subconscious level, and you know her, his impact on her is definitely more than than hers on him. I mean, you know, whether she has an impact on him in in any significant way is debatable, but he definitely has a major impact on him. Like like you said, you know, to pick but up. We do learn a lot of Tywin in these. Yeah, sorry, just to jump in there. We did learn a lot about Tywin, which is quite fascinating. One of the main lines really or the speeches the uh, monologues you could say that he uh, goes on uh, that he uh, discusses really is the notion of a legacy and he mm-hmm. says this will be my last war 
Uh, you know, I've never lost a war. If, you know, if I was a man in this position, would I have ever lost a war? And he's talking about the legacy, the dynasty that's going to be left as a result of victory in in this war. Um, and I think that it's quite interesting, actually, how he kind of foreshadows his his fate. Really, I mean, he predicts it well enough. I mean, arguably, he's right because he doesn't fight again. <laughs> yeah. um, after this, he sits on the well on the figurative iron throne you could say i mean although yeah. his hand of the king he is you know all, all but name you could argue he is really the king of the uh, seven kingdoms of westeros and i think that it's uh, fascinating just to get more insight into his character again it just cements what his overriding goal and ambition is is the legacy and dynasty that he will leave and it'll be interesting to see we we're talking speculation for season five now He's demised in season four. Where is that legacy going to go? What, what's going to be left? How are children of uh, Tywin Lannister, Jamie, and Cersei going to pick up the pieces? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. All right, so let's let's move on. Let's talk about the goings on in the the King of the North, his camp, Rob Rob Stark. A lot of interesting stuff in in these episodes. We see. Well, let's let's start with Rob, and then we'll then we'll talk about what Catelyn does, because uh, well, because Rob is really the first, uh, the first one in the the Stark camp to. Well, was, was did Rob marry get married first, or did Catelyn release Jamie first? Because they both make these kind of these mistakes that really wind up kind of biting them in the ass. It, it seems like that seems to be the theme of of what goes on in in Rob's camp in these episodes, is that both of them make these decisions based out of emotion instead of, you know, out of logic. And so I, I'm wondering, is that something to do with, with the Starks? Is that, you know, maybe something that comes from their upbringing? Is that something that maybe Ned in, instilled in them? Because, you know, Ned was a, he was an emotional person. I mean, you know, he, we saw him attack uh, Littlefinger in, in season one, when he thought that Littlefinger was making jokes about his wife and, you know that's probably not the smartest decision is to to threaten the the master of coin just over a few uh your wife is a prostitute jokes uh, so do you think that there's something about the starks that that leads them to make these kind of rash uh emotional decisions i think so particularly on evidence with catelyn stark at least in these five episodes here um as she really does showcase her compassion and love for her family yeah fears that the girls are incarcerated in king's landing and now bran and rickon are in a way incarcerated in winterfell at the hands of theon greyjoy and these are her children these are the people she has been tasked to protect and upbring and nourish and and and, and cherish for the rest of her life and she's lost them and I think the emotions do run high as a result of this. And uh, in terms of which came first, was it Catelyn releasing Jamie or Rob marrying Talisa? It was actually Catelyn mm. releasing the Kingslayer. And to be honest, inadvertently, I could uh, one could argue that really fueled the marriage between Rob Stark and Talisa. Yeah, the fact that. Rob has now seen her mother, His mother. in a way, dishonor, dishonor her duty. We, remember that quote last season 
by Master yeah, Aiden. Yeah, I was just going to bring Aiden, that up. <laughs> the love is the death of duty. That's what he said to Jon Snow at the mm-hmm. wall. And I think that is on evidence here, really, that love is the death of duty. And, you know, Catelyn gets punished for liberating the Kingslayer, who was murdered one of the most important members on Rob's cabinet, the Karstark's son. Mm-hmm. And... Again, we will see later in season three the ramifications of that because Karstark is really unable to forgive Catelyn and Rob for what has occurred. And on top of that, he's now lost a political prisoner, which was so important to his cause, really. Having Jamie there was vital, I think, for Rob securing his position, but also for his triumphs in a battlefield because... Yeah. His men were enthusiasts, zealots to his cause. Once the Kingslayer had left, a lot of them became dissuaded with him. And that was really, I think, exemplified through Bolton and Carl Stark's real betrayal of Rob. I mean, we see later Roose Bolton directly murders Rob, assassinates him. Mm-hmm. Spoilers, everyone, in the Red <laughs> Wedding. But then we also have the Carl Starks that betray him when they killed a... Cousins of the Lannisters, yep. those two, those two, two boys, and you, or relatives of the Lannisters, those two boys, and I think that really demonstrates that holding the Kingslayer was vital for so many reasons, but losing him, and then placing Catelyn under house arrest, as it were, it really just spiraled out of control. The whole situation in Rob's camp, and I will admit that I've also looked at a couple of episodes through season three in the past week. And I can really see his mission starting to unravel. And it's not as surprising what happens in a Red Wedding in hindsight when I look back at it. Yeah. Because there were many instances when Rob had put love before duty. And that really was the death of him. He was, he was like his father's boy, really. He followed the similar steps. You know, Ned was an open rebellion, was he not? Ned got with a, a lady... Instead, uh, got with a lady whilst he was out in a battlefield, even though he was betrothed to someone else. Mm-hmm. The same way that Rob has secured a, an, or has uh, sealed an oath with Walder Frey to marry this one of his children, uh, one of his daughters, and instead he marries because he loves this person. And of yeah. course, we have to look at it through the contextual period and the contemporary society of Game of Thrones of Westeros. Obviously, in our contemporary society, we value love very, very yeah. highly. So they do as well, but ultimately duty is can can well be the death of it, and we see that in many instances in this show. Yeah, so quite a long-winded answer there, but <laughs> yeah. I, I'd like to get your thoughts on this, Dominic. What what is it you think about the situation at Rob's camp that is well m- most, I guess, in, in, inspiring and interesting to to examine? Really, do you think that the events of Catelyn releasing the Kingslayer? and the marriage of Talisa could be considered as factors which ultimately derailed his mission of seizing King's Landing. Oh, I, I think they absolutely absolutely uh, became factors. I think, you know, Catelyn releasing, like you said, Catelyn re- releasing Jamie resulted in, you know, a lot of people uh, losing their losing their faith in their king. And uh, and then, of course, the, the wedding to Talisa led pretty much directly to the red wedding and well that was the end of rob stark and then and the end of his mission basically and but i think you you hit on it when you said 
when you brought up that quote from last season from Meister Eamon of, you know, love is the death of duty. And, you know, we look at these and we can say, oh, you know, they should have, they shouldn't have done this. They sh- they shouldn't have, uh, you know, Rob should have just stuck with his oath and, and Catelyn should have just, uh, you know, continued, continued on with the, the war, not released Jamie Lannister. But really, can, can anybody say that they wouldn't have made that same decision or that they can't understand at least where these people are coming from, especially Catelyn. I mean, you, you look at, at, at everything she has lost already with, with, with losing Ned and she's now involved in this war and she, she hasn't seen her children. She doesn't even know if all of her children are safe. It, it's pretty clear that none of her children are safe in, in some bizarro kind of way Arya is the safest you know i mean rickon and bran are on the run sansa is in the clutches of cersei and joffrey it's it's this really horrible situation and you know really you can absolutely understand the the feeling of you know what i i have to save save my children and so if that means basically going behind my son's back and and undermining his war effort you know that's that's the price you have to pay, and and again, it all comes back to the whole love is the death of duty uh, situation, and I think that's really, you know, what we see we see that playing out here. You know, we we heard that last season with Jon Snow, but we didn't really understand it until this season, and and in this season, it's really demonstrated for the audience. You know. S- subtly, subtly, you know, they they don't start quoting that line all over the place or anything, uh, but it, it do- this does show the audience what what Meister Eamon truly meant when he said that because well, both of these characters end up dead, and their mission is ultimately a complete and utter failure. Well, Dominic, I'm going to ask you a further question now. Switch it up a little bit now while we're talking about Rob's camp here. And I was I was watching a documentary for the inside of the episode entitled Prince of Winterfell, so episode eight. Right. And that's when we witness Rob putting Catelyn under house arrest. Yeah. And the um, executives there, um, they are oh, Benioff, I believe his name is. I yep. think I think that's how you pronounce it. Benioff. Um, and and he stated that. For Rob to incarcerate his mother, it was very difficult, but he had to because of this sense of loyalty, duty, and an, and an honourable code, which he is really upholding and feels that his mother, in a way, has just undermined completely, has undercut it. Mm-hmm. So I'd, I'd like to get your thoughts on where really the relationship between Cat and Rob changes, uh, or how it changes, really, because, you know, we look at it beforehand... And they were so close together. Look at at the beginning of season one. They're talking about strategy, diplomatic tactics. Rob sends Catelyn to Renly because he trusts her the most. And, I mean, I'd I'd be interested to see what you make of that scene, really, and how that trust really collapses between Robert and his mother. Yeah, it's it's interesting to to see that, that, that dynamic shift, as you mentioned it. And... You know, I think really, if Rob, if Rob putting his mother under house arrest is really almost more of a, uh, again, a little bit of that, uh, you know, love is the death of duty situation. Because I think had anybody else released the Kingslayer, um, it would have been off with their head. But you can't expect a boy to chop his mother's head off uh, unless they're Joffrey, in which case that that, that probably could have happened. 
had he lived long enough. Um, but again, I, I, I swear I watched these episodes before we recorded this episode, but I'm, I'm, I'm getting the timeline just a little bit um, jumbled in my mind. Um, does does Catelyn release the Kingslayer before or after they find out what's going on at Winterfell with Theon? Oh, okay, so first of all, they find out what's happened at Winterfell. They receive a raven right. by Roose Bolton, who then Robert, who informs Robert and Cat about the situation with the sons, and that's when he then uh, Robert then says, you know, you know oh, sorry, Roose Bolton says, I'll send my bastard son to deal with this situation, right. and then Cat releases the Kingslayer. But it's also important to know at this point as well, Rob's not at camp in the scene where Catelyn mm. removes the Kingslayer's head. And Brienne and, and Kat do make the point when they say that uh, you see it at, at night at the camp that there are these soldiers fighting with each other and says, you know, if something's not done with the Kingslayer, all hell's going to break loose, really. Um, yeah. With a, with a crude way to put it there. But, yeah, that, so that's the basic timeline. Yeah, okay. So I, I think what you're seeing here is is that Catelyn... Really, I mean, you know, she she did. I think what we see here is that she wanted she wanted to she she wanted to release the King's Lair long ago. She would have preferred to have traded him to get Arya and Sansa back, uh, you know, because she assumes they're both in King's Landing. So she's been wanting that for a while, and what she finds is an excuse to do that. And you know, I think, th- and again, that that feeling of wanting to trade him to save some of her children, I think that just intensified when they found out that her other two children are now prisoner in their own home. Uh, so, you know, now, like she, like she said, she only has one free child at this point, And so she wants to, uh, you know, try and save the other ones. And so, uh, so that is driving her to release the Kingslayer. And then what we see in that sequence that you mentioned there, where, you know, they have, they say, you know, something has to be done about the Kingslayer. They, what she finds there is the excuse, the reason that the, the, the justification in her own mind for why she can do this. And, you know, it's basically that, you know, if she didn't do something with him, that they were going to kill him, that, that the, that the, the men were going to kill him. And well, then they'd have nothing. They'd have nothing. They have nothing to trade. And so in this situation, at least they're trading him for something. That's, Absolutely. That's my I, think, I mean, I think it's fascinating really when you, when you consider what happens in that episode because it all really escalates because of course we have to remember that so Alton who was Jamie's cousin was placed in that pen mm-hmm. as the result of the goodwill that Robert bestowed upon yeah. him for um, receiving the message which huh, Cersei had given back which was yeah. to rip up the paper <laughs> of this treaty that they were going to have but anyway um, I'd like to get your opinion actually on that scene between Sir Alton and Jamie because this kind of links nicely I think into when we get into Jamie and Brienne really and their storyline which goes uh, into season three really but I mean did you not think that was such a chilling scene particularly once you watch it the second time um, and know that the Kingslayer was ultimately gonna kill him yeah. as soon as he entered that pen. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's in that scene you get really the the you see Jamie's cunning. You see just how how smart he is, basically, that he is able to play off this guy's admiration of him. And he takes that and he uses it for his own purposes. And he kills him as a result. Um but he was able to you know, basically 
outsmart that kid. <laughs> you know, he, he tricked that kid, let that kid's admiration of his hero blind him and was able to, 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 to benefit from that. And so what we really see is, is just how cunning and, and smart Jamie can be, even, even if it is in a, a very evil kind of way. And it's, it is in these scenes, it's interesting that they're really reinforcing this kind of Jamie is evil situation. Um, because as you mentioned, when we start to see him with Brienne, especially later on in, in, in next season, there's a lot more, uh, sympathy sent his way than we saw at all in seasons one or two. But, but, uh, what was your take on that scene? I think it was just, it was really gripping to watch because really it was just so dark and chilling. And again, it's made mention in the, uh, inside the episode of episode seven, which name has escaped me briefly, but has now returned to me a man without honor. Um, when you watch it a second time, I think it's even worse because you can really buy into it. It's great acting by um, by Nikolai again. The surname I'm not going to even bother trying to pronounce because I can't. Nikolai so, Kosterweldu. <laughs> Master Weldu, there you go. So I'd, I'd rather not embarrass myself <laughs> in that way. But ultimately, I think that scene is just exemplifies the darker side of Jamie Lannister. I mean, we talk about how. He has this redemption story, as it were, or at least we we learn about his past and and the justification for his actions that he has committed, particularly killing the Mad King, as it were. Um, why on earth he decided to slaughter him mm-hmm. um, or stab him in the back, I should say. Yeah. And I think that it is just such a, a chilling scene to look at as we get into the mindset of Jamie Lannister. We see that he is perceptive and he's not. He's not a good prisoner. That's what he said. He's not like Ned Stark, who, who, when we saw him, just sat around and didn't even try to escape. It's fortunate Lord Varys sent, a bit, sent him a bit of water. Mm-hmm. Whereas Jamie Lannister's not like that. He wants to get out. He wants to put up a fight. Um, and it's quite, it's quite appropriate to reference this line from Tywin Lannister when he said to Tyrion, well, at least your brother would have put a better fight when he was incarcerated yeah. and he does he yeah. escapes he gets he gets recaptured yeah. but i think it's important to note that scene really because that's the catalyst for a lot of these events is the fact that he escapes and again we can link that back to misdirection and miscalculation on rob's part for putting his cousin in there um ultimately if he didn't do that while rob was away we may not have had a lot of these events the talisa stuff would likely have happened but you would not necessarily have had the as you put it there, the justification mm-hmm. on yeah. Catelyn's part to actually release him. Um, she wouldn't have had the excuse to do so as much because someone was guarding that pen. He hadn't escaped um, and there was no need to fight over about it. But no, I just thought that that was an interesting scene. Uh, but did at any point, Dominic, did you think at that final scene when uh, Catelyn says, your sword, Brienne, did you think that he was going to get his head chopped off or something? I, see, I, I wasn't... I I I felt like that was a that was a bit of a red herring. I I I I was thinking that they were maybe going for for more of the uh, the release him situation there because I, I I I you know I don't want to be like oh I predicted everything that would happen but I think in that scene I I I felt that they were you know purposefully trying to make the audience think okay this is the end of Jamie Lannister but but really um, she was just going to release him and, and so but did did you did you buy into it for for that scene? I wouldn't. I wouldn't say I did. I think, like you said, 
there was clearly a lot of build-up when he says... You know, technically, I'm a more honourable man than Ned Stark because I only slept with one woman, but Ooh. he didn't. And it's just just trying to play on Catelyn's emotions. And we see that from both Cat and Ned and Rob to an extent, yeah. family does really drive a lot of these characters, the love they have for their family. And you could really see, or you could believe, I should say, that Catelyn would, based on her emotions, end up assassinating the Kingslayer as a result of the comments that he had made. If if Ned Stark was willing to choke Littlefinger on the basis of a, you know, as you said, a, a little jibe at his wife, mm-hmm. why not kill the Kingslayer, who has done so much wrong to his family? Oh, yeah. Don't forget, he pushed Bran out the window. Yep, which started I mean, this a whole lot. mess. Exactly. So, ultimately, it's, it's definitely a point in the season or a point in that episode where you could believe that the... That the murder of Jamie Lannister would occur. Mm-hmm. It didn't, and whether people agree with that or not, in terms of, you know, where, would that have been better for the Starks if they kept him? I think it would have done, because it would have given them leverage. Once he's gone, um, then their leverage is lost. And I think another reason why Cat decided to free him and send him to King's Landing was because of the fact that Tyrion had then delivered the bones of Ned to her. Yeah, There was a little bit of faith on the show there which would not have surfaced or would not have occurred had Tyrion not been there, had Joffrey been there. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think Joffrey would have sent the bones back. Everything um, would have been worse had Joffrey been there, yeah. Yeah, well, to be honest, if Joffrey had his way, Sansa would probably be dead by now, oh, let's yeah. be honest. Yeah. Um, and, and if Arya was still there, I'm sure she, I'm sure she would have been gone too. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think that, that whole... The whole end of uh, season two at Rob's camp is intriguing because I think it's really episode seven and eight where it's the threshold where it really shifts the tone of um, well, we... the tone of their storyline, but also the, tra- the trajectory of the storyline where it ends up. Yeah, and we talked before about uh, how everything in in these episodes had kind of been building up the the Lannisters as being the losers, and then at the end. It turns it on on its head on its head when Tywin rides into the into the throne room there, and I think you kind of got a, a a similar thing going on with the Starks because you look at where Rob is at at episode five, things are going pretty well. He's he's won a whole bunch of battles. He's captured the Kingslayer. Uh, things things are looking up. Things are are looking good. It looks like we're finally going to see some good things happen for the North. Um, but then as these episodes progress, things get gradually worse and worse. And then you look at where he is at the end of these episodes. He's, he's in no position anymore to really, to, to, to think that he could really win, uh, or he's in a, a worse position than he was before, at least. So it's kind of the reverse of what happens to the Lannisters in, in these episodes. And it, it, it was interesting to, to watch that play out and to compare the two, because like I said, they they, they both start off at, they they almost switch places. <laughs> they basically switch places to where, to what kind of uh, position they're holding. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Well, let's let's move a little bit. Let's move a little bit more north. Let's go beyond the wall, and let's talk a bit about Jon Snow. He, uh, you know, in, the, in these episodes, we see that he he uh, he comes face to face with the wildling Egret, and he can't bring himself to kill her. Now. Correct me if I'm wrong. Have we seen John kill anybody uh, up bef- up until this point? Had he had he killed before? Because he killed the um, he killed the White Walker, but that's not quite the same as 
as or maybe not not necessarily the White Walker, but the guy who is coming back, the the dead guy who came back, and that's no, not, it wasn't White Walker. Well, it was it, it, it kind of, of turned into a White. Yeah, it was kind Walker. of. I know what you mean. Becoming in, uh, a White Walker. Chambers. Yeah, but has he had he killed anybody else before? I don't think so. Yeah, I don't believe I recall him doing so. To so be fair to him. Yeah. So is this a situation here where he he's just not yet ready to, to to take a life that he he's it's just it's not so much that it's that it's her or that it's it's a woman it's just that he uh you know he thought he was ready but he wasn't to actually do what it need, needs to be done yeah it, yeah it may well be to be fair to him you could argue i think that the first person he does kill was corin harfan yeah yeah at the end at the end of uh, episode 10 in this season so it's it's understandable why i think that there's still a bit of compassion there. As you said, he's not... He's a human being, and he hasn't done it before. Um, I, I do think it's quite interesting, though, and that he, he doesn't execute her as well, in the sense that I remember in the first episode, he's the one that tells Bran to make sure he watches Ned execute this deserter. Yeah. Um, you know, because Father will know if you don't. So clearly, you know, he's following the trend that you should... If if someone has been found guilty of treason or guilty of committing a crime, which clearly they'll see the wildlings as being these malfeasant uh, individuals, then ultimately that would be justification enough for John, surely, to then execute her. But he doesn't. Yeah. And I think that's just really the nature of Jon Snow, isn't it? He is a caring individual and he doesn't... It, 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 it seems like he doesn't have the will to do it. Yeah. Uh, it is an intriguing scene, so I'll be in- interested to get your interpretation because it's it's a hard one to necessarily justify, but perhaps the fact of not killing would be the main one. Yeah, I, I think what we see is that you know by the time by the time season four and season five roll around, John is pretty comfortable with killing. I mean, there's that huge battle, uh, the the battle of, of Castle Black, and he kills just, uh, tons and tons of wildlings in that. And I think what we see here is is a character who is not quite ready. He does. He's not a killer yet. Uh, he, he doesn't quite have that killer instinct. And he, he thought he did. He he believed he did. Um, but then he sort of was put in a moment in a situation where he had to actually do it, and he couldn't bring himself to. And ultimately, it was that decision that he couldn't bring himself to to kill her that just led to him becoming a killer, anyways, because. You know, it, it, it's kind of the, the the situation of being part of the Night's Watch is that you have to become c- comfortable with this kind of stuff because, as we saw, he chooses not to kill her, but that leads him to a situation where he has to kill the half hand, and he's he, he's not. There's never a, an option for him to not become a killer, and I think we sort of see that he had he was almost in a position where you know his first kill could have just been this wildling. And that would have, you know, it probably would have been difficult to deal with. It would have been tough to deal with, but it would have been easier to deal with than having to kill one of the most important people in Night's in the Night's Watch and somebody who we had just seen was basically looking out for him, helping him out, and 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 giving him some some sage advice about being uh, a watcher on the wall. So that that that's sort of how I see it uh, in terms of what happened there with with John. It's that it. You know his decision kind of made things worse for him that he wound up in this this situation where he had to kill someone he he probably respected. Mm. Yeah. So. Agreed. Uh, yeah, and then then that that sequence there where he had to kill 
uh, the half hand that that was pulled off brilliantly. It was it was done so well, and in, in, in just the uh, in that character, the, the, the half hand to, to make that sacrifice uh, was uh, you know you sort of you get to, to, to see really what what the Night's Watch is all about, and in in many ways it's sort of a, a preview of what John will become because at the end of season four we see him go out there fully expecting to die to uh, to confront Mance Raider and, and and kill him thinking that you know Mance's men will then slaughter John on on the spot uh but let, let's I do want to talk a little bit about uh Daenerys in these episodes because she as, as I mentioned at the top of the episode she kind of goes through and I, I can't think of any any better way to to put this uh but her her Jedi trial you know she is confronted with the quick and easy path uh you know she she sees um in that vision that she has in the house of the undying. Uh, she sees Drogo there. She sees what had been the source of her power and she is tempted to embrace it, to, to stay there, to, to think that she could, you know, just get her power back that way. But she chooses not to, she recognizes that it's a vision and that if she wants, and that, you know, her, her true power comes from not giving into it. And as a result, she's able to get her dragons back. But I, I'm curious on, on your take on that scene. What did what did you think of that whole uh, House of House of the Undying sequence, and really uh, everything that happened with with Danny leading up to it? Yeah, I think her storyline certainly progresses in these five episodes here. And I think what we're looking at really is this this real tutoring on her part of the idea of self reliance. She's been so reliant on other individuals before in her life, whether it was Carl Drogo, mm-hmm. whether it was her brother Viserys. And now, don't forget, we've had the episode where Dakos has helped her get into the city mm-hmm. and has now asked to take his hand in marriage. And she's learning to deal with that, really, because she could easily just fall upon him and say, yeah, I'll marry you and share the power, but she doesn't. She has her dragons, and she's now the sole Khaleesi, the Kalasar, who is looking after this Dothraki horde. And I think we see that going into the house of Undying on her own is another example of this fact. And, of course, losing her dragons is a huge and crucial point in her life. I mean, she's been so confident, so self-assured in these last, I would say, six, well, the first six episodes of season two. Mm-hmm. And then she loses the dragons. Yeah. As a result, she loses a part of her identity, to be honest. The dragons are a part of her now. They're a part of her strength, and they're also a part of her makeup. And she loses that. And then slowly, I think you see, she does start to revert a little bit back to her adolescent state where she, she, she can't really trust anyone. She doesn't trust Drawer at, the, at certain points. Mm-hmm. Um, even though he's been her loyal protector for the last season and a half. She can't trust him. And he says, I would do anything for you. And she says, well, find my dragons then. Yeah. And you see that stubbornness really residing in her once again. Um, and I think those type of events just leading up to the House of the Undying, um, it really does be unfold, obviously, when the council, the thirteen, the 11 of the 13 council members are assassinated. Yeah. By the warlock and Dakos, which, by the way, before I carry on, Dominic, I want to get your thoughts on that scene. That was a, 
That, 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 do you, were you surprised oh, yeah. by that scene? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That one took me by, by, by shock. Yeah, that one gave me a real shock. I was not expecting that. I was, I, you know, I, the, the, that whole scene with, um, with, the, with um, da, da, Z- Zaros, Dakos. Dakos Zaros. yeah. Uh, with him declaring himself ki- king of Karth. And then the uh, then yeah, then like you said the assassination of eleven of the thirteen, that was yeah that that scene definitely shocked me. I, I don't I don't know how I expected that scene to play out, but it, it wasn't like that. And that was sort of our, our it was it was kind of kind of in some ways almost like a precursor to some of these to like the red wedding almost in that you know you see all these people die in such a short period of time in in one space, and uh, and yeah I I thought it was a really it was a really cool scene. And uh, a really and a, a real shocker. It was it was not a not one where I saw it coming. I, I don't know. Did, did, were you surprised by that, or 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 did you see it coming? Oh yeah, no. I mean, there aren't there are scenes in Game of Thrones which stand out, which just capture your imagination. I think that was certainly one of them. That yeah. scene with the warlock assassinating 13, eleven out of the thirteen members was just. It was visually such an impactful scene on the audience. It was. Yeah. It was. It wasn't necessarily as graphic as what we see in later yeah. <laughs> examples of that. Of course, the Red Wedding being yeah. a case in point, or whether we look back to where we see Oberyn Martell in season four. But it did have that shock effect. Really, it wasn't expected. We didn't know what was going to happen when Daenerys walked in there. She declares that she wants her dragons back, blaming it on the 13. And then one of them stands up and declares, yep, you're right, I, I, <laughs> I announced this truth, and then ends up you know, welcoming, warming uh, Daenerys to, in the end, travel to the House of the Undying, which, again, we, we see would be a trap. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realise I'm talking a lot about leading up to that, but I just think it's important to contextualise sure. what happens when Daenerys goes to the House of the Undying. So um, when she sees her illusions... Um, and there are a multiple number of illusions. Uh, the first one, of course, we see is the Iron Throne yeah. encased in snow. Later, then she then sees Cal Drogo and her baby son, uh, the White Stallion, as it were. Yeah. And then finally, we have Danny finally encountering her dragons, reunited with her dragons, and then gets incarcerated by the warlock. So there are a number of big moments in that vision there or the the illusion that was at least concocted by the warlock so i, I before i say I, i'll ask you first though what what your thoughts were on the significance of the illusions and what necessarily they represent i mean for example do you think they are more reflective of daenerys's desires and thoughts or were they just real images concocted by the warlock that really had no necessary significance to her thoughts and feelings. Yeah, I I equate, I equate the House of the Undying kind of with the uh, the cave on Dagobah from from Star Wars, where it kind of it's it's based on you know what's in there, only what you take with you. And I think that's reflected in what Danny sees is is that she she sees the throne, she sees what her ultimate goal is. Like this is she's come finally she comes face to face with this thing that she's probably only really heard about she's never actually seen it in person or at least not since she was like a baby and so i think that was i think that was important for her to sort of to see her goal to, to get that moment where she understands truly what she's she's striving for like what the ultimate end game for her is 
and then to sort of go out beyond the wall, uh, I think sort of is, is like a, maybe a, a little bit of a hint of some of the things she'll have to deal with once she uh, when she takes the throne, assuming she does. Because as we know, there's White Walkers and all kinds of crazy stuff beyond the wall that's that's coming. And then to bring her face to face with Drogo, you know, we we talked last week, I think, about how Daenerys, her power in season one came entirely from Khal Drogo. It was the fact that she was his wife and and that part of her journey in, in season two and, and, and beyond is to get back to that level of where she is that powerful again. And I think when she's forced to come face to face with Drogo, you know, there's kind of that that feeling that like if only she could stay in that vision, if she were to lose herself in basically in her own mind and go crazy, um, but she would be she would stay with Drogo um to get that sort of quick and easy power, but she recognizes that she can't do that anymore. And that's when she leaves. And that is, it's, it's worth noting that it's after she does, after she walks away from Drogo, that she then comes to where her dragons are. It was sort of like she had passed almost all the tests and sort of the final one was to defeat the warlock, uh, and, and get her, get her dragons back. But, you know, cause everything, everything had basically been going on in her mind and she had to, to, to learn from that. At least that, that's how I, that's how I see it. it. It was almost, it was like a test. And that's why I keep calling it her, her Jedi trial. Like this was her, you know, this was to show that she is strong enough. She is powerful enough to go from, you know, where she was at the beginning of season one, which was, she had been, or which at the beginning of season one, she had no power. Then at the end, then the season one progressed, she got power and then she lost it. And now she has to regain it. And this was sort of that moment of like, yes, she she is in a position where she can regain it. And you see, once she gets out of the House of the Undying, which she's acting a lot more powerful, a lot more in line with what we see in seasons three and four, where she's really in charge. Uh, you know, because for a lot of season two, she's kind of doing damage control and she's kind of begging and pleading with other people. And at the end, in that final scene, when she she imprisons. Uh, Daxos Daxos in in his own vault you see that she's finally taking control of of her own destiny and I think that's what this whole vision was about it was to see her goal and then to come face to face face with the the quick and easy path which would be to go back to being with Drogo but she realizes that she can't do that that she has to move forward and as a result she's able to get her dragons back and she learns how to she learns how she has to act in order to move forward at least that—that's how I see it all playing out. Do, do you agree, or do you have a, a different take on it? Yeah, no, very interesting points you raised there, Dominic. I think the the one that stood out to me was the Iron Throne scene. Mm. You see it in covered in snow, and we also see the roofs of the throne room really ablaze, or the ruins of them, I should say. And I think that. It's a vision, it's an illusion that's been concocted, but I also feel that there's a, almost a bit of foreshadow there, is there not? Mm. I mean, the the ruined roofs and the charred tops gave me the impression of dragons yeah. burning the rooftops, and then the snow, of course, the impending doom or winter. you could almost call it apocalypse mm. with the emergence of the, retur- the return of the White Walkers. So there's a lot of elements there on display. And yet yeah, the Iron Throne obviously sits there. That's, that's Danny's objective. That's her goal. 
And she realizes that the only way she's ever going to achieve that is through iron will and coercion. She's never going to inherit the iron throne mm-hmm. because it's not been bestowed as her right if we're going to follow the true hereditary system that, that has been implemented in Westeros. And I think that it's just fascinating to see which takes priority. I mean, she still, just as when she's about to touch the Iron Throne, she hears the dragons and then walks that way. Um, I mean, when she realizes the Iron Throne's her goal, her ultimate goal, yeah. but she can't achieve that without her dragons. Yeah. And I think that's really what, in part, what that scene was showcasing. And I mean, and you, I mean, I, I, won't, I won't repeat the point she made because I agree with the particularly the Carl Drogo one where she leaves him and that's when she then finds her dragons there. She She's more confident and assured within herself. And even then when she's you know, incarcerated by this warlock and you think to yourself, oh my goodness me, like, you're going to stay there for eternity. And then she says Dracarys and it's a great moment there when the dragons burn the warlock. Yeah. And, and it just really demonstrates to the audience that Danny is no longer, uh, as you said, uh, this, this begging, groveling child, this, in, this weak and, uh, in, in a way, um, unambitious child that she mm. had really no idea of what she wanted to do and she just lent on other people, whether it was, as I said, Drogo or even Jorah Mormont to an extent. She was so reliant on him. Now she's this authoritative figure and she recognises what her ambition will be and she wants to see it through to the end. And yeah. as soon as the episode's done, you know, she, they, they steal the gold and she says, will this be enough ship, be enough to purchase a ship to go to Astapor? And then Jorah says, I, a ship. And, you know, they're saying that in their uh, witty and jovial, jovial way. Yeah. And I think that it's just, as you said, it's the progression now on Danny's story, her trajectory... And as for the audience, audience's sake, it becomes patently obvious. In a way, I feel that her story um, and and her emotions and, and and what happens in the series is quite is is is, is quite symbolic. I think of the actual trajectory of her storyline in the sense that um, you know when we see her, she's you know, she's unsure about herself and she's she's testing out. Um, the boundaries of ruling and the idea of magics and in the same way that as the audience we don't really know where our story is going to go we're not really sure what Danny's trying to achieve what is it that she's looking to do but by the end of season two they've got a direct heading we know we're going to Astapor they know they're going to Astapor and they know they want to purchase an armed forces and take the Iron Throne and I think it becomes a lot more linear and we, and we, and we can follow it a lot easier because we know what their ambition is, the yeah. same way the characters and, are now aware. Yeah, and you look at you compare that to where they were at the beginning of this season, where they were completely lost and they had no mm. idea where they were going, and they just kind of stumbled into Karth. And to compare that to, as you're saying, at the end of the season, where they know where they're going, they know how they're going to get there, they have an objective. It's it just it symbolizes basically her journey of of how she has changed over these 10 episodes absolutely absolutely all right so before we wrap up we're, we're gonna go go back to winterfell and i'm gonna throw it over to you kieran because i know you have some some harsh thoughts on uh on theon Greyjoy and and everything that he pulled in these episodes 
I have a lot to say about Theon Greyjoy, I have to say, and I'm glad you saved it to last because yeah. it is one of the more... Int- I mean, the, the, what, regardless of what you think of Theon Greyjoy, what I think of Theon Greyjoy, these are still very intriguing, fascinating moments in the series that uh, that do capture your attention and grip you into them. And mm-hmm. so we see Winterfell has been besieged and it's been overtaken by Theon and the Iron Islanders. Remember the last time we saw the Iron Islanders, you know, with their sea bitch, as it were, you know, they were, they were just going to go and do some fishing raids. And now yeah. they've occupied Winterfell, the home of the Starks. And that has major ramifications for a number of people's storylines, one of them which we've already talked about, which is Rob Stark. Yep. Um, in, t- in two ways, in the sense that he has to send troops to take back Winterfell, retake Winterfell, and it undermines his authority, the sense that he can't even protect his homeland. But I'm going to get into Theon Greyjoy first of all, um, and then and then I'll pass it over to you because I've, I've probably got a few questions I can ask you about Winterfell actually. <laughs> so I think that we see Theon Greyjoy. He is a very complex character, and I think a lot of his uh, a lot a lot of his what I would say uh, negative tendencies or at least from the audience's perspective tendencies that we. Uh, deplore that we abhor really is i mean the way that he treats his homeland really the starks he wants to be belonged i mean that that, that's that's overriding for fion that the sense of belonging he didn't feel like he was at home with the starks even though they treated him as a family he, he still felt like he was an outsider and in the same way he returns back to the iron islands with yeah, to to return and see his father, he expects this warm welcome in, and he gets shut down. He gets brought back down to earth, yeah. um, and his father doesn't trust him. His father doesn't respect him as a war warlike commander, and Theon's really ostracized by his family. And so, the actions that we see here, in my mind, are are resulting from that, the fact that he wants to feel authoritative. I mean, he's, he's grown up with Ned Stark and, and, and his brother to... almost brother to Rob Stark. Not blood-related, but he, he, he sees him in that way. Yeah. And these people get respect from their troops. People will, you know, people were fighting for Ned Stark. People were fighting for Rob Stark. No one's fighting for Theon. I mean, Theon has been struggling to, to really... Just get a hold of his commanders, get a hold of his troops to actually uh, push them in, in, into the direction that he wants them to follow. I mean, even throughout this, there's still questions about his leadership role. People, uh, the Iron Islanders, still aren't completely in tune with his philosophy, as it were, and, and his policies. You know, when he has to punch one of the Islanders down to the ground, yeah. uh, when he has to kill Sir Roderick, because, you know, um, I can't remember his name, but the, that, that advisor that he has and is constantly in his ear telling him what to do um, says, you know, well, he can't. He spat on your face that he has to pay the iron price. Yeah. Um, and, and Theon has to prove himself. Uh, Rob and Ned don't necessarily have to prove themselves in that way. Um, and he just makes a hash of the decisions, to be honest, a, a, a rash decisions on countless occasions. Yeah. And it's just so frustrating. And the bit that really gets me is one, when he assassinates, executes Sir Roderick, 
a man who had taught him to swing a sword, a man who had really been a mentor to him in that respect. And then you have the scene as well where he has the, the, the two boys, the child, two bodies of those orphan children hung up, strung up, and in full view of the Winterfell crowd and Maester Lewin. Of course, you see the scene where he, you know, he looks down and, and clearly he, he realises he's gone down this dark path, but it doesn't stop it. It just continues on, really. He had that moment with Yara. He had that moment where he could escape, and he refused it. And that's why I really have no sympathy for him. I mean, his actions, I, I, I just, I mean, I've got a lot more I can say about it. But before I do, because I don't want to take the entire section for myself, I will, I will throw it to you because I know that you're not as passionate and fervent as me about my views of Theon <laughs> Greyjoy and the way that, um, you know, I'm, I'm clearly not his greatest fan. Sure. Uh, that's, that's one way to put it. But what, what did you, how did you interpret Theon's uh, expedition and rule over Winterfell. I mean, can you see any redeeming qualities, or maybe um, times where you, you can sympathise with his character? The the uh, there's the one scene where he speaks with my with uh, Maester Lewin in in the night, and you can hear uh, uh, the Boltons that them or uh, I guess Ramsay Snow. We we don't know it's him yet, but he's he's out there playing that horn, and we see. That Theon, I think he realizes that he's in over his head and he realizes that he made a mistake and that he realizes there's no coming back from this mistake. His, the only real option that Meister Lewin is able to present to him is, is going to the wall and, and, and he doesn't want to do that. And so I, I think there's, there is a certain level. I can, I can muster up a certain level of, of sympathy for Theon because, you know, he, he was actually, you know what? I can't really, you know, like he, he, he's, his goal was, power and, and to be respected and he can never quite gain that and and he was kind of blinded by that and and so in in that sense the way he was blinded by it i can, can meister up a little bit of of sympathy for him the way he his 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 drive for for power blinded him um from making the right decision and you know had he stuck with rob that probably would have been his path to power that he probably would have wound up with some good position with Rob Stark, he would have wound up with some land, with the, probably a good title. Who knows? Maybe he would have been Hand of the King. You know, like there there was all kinds of potential there. Uh, but he threw it all away because he, you know, to, to use another Star Wars reference, or really, I guess the same Star Wars reference, he embraced the quick and easy path. And he went after Winterfell. He basically, he kicked Winterfell when it was down. He, he did the cowardly thing. He went after Winterfell when he knew all of their soldiers were off fighting with Rob. When he, he knew that there was really nobody there, and that the Lord of Winterfell at this point is is a is a twelve year old boy who just recently lost the use of his legs, you know. I I, I think that's how old Bran is. I'm not. I think he's twelve. I'm not sure. Um, but you know, it it is. He's you know, it's basically he's just a little kid. He's just a kid, and and that's what we're what we're seeing there. And so. I, I, I agree with you. He's definitely a, a deplorable character. He's a despicable character. His actions are horrible, um, and 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 yeah, he's he's uh, he's not one that I have sympathy for in these scenes. I have a little bit more sympathy for him next season when he starts being tortured, um, just because you know, for as as many horrible things as he did, I don't know if he necessarily deserved that. Uh, but we'll get into that when we get into that. I mean, the thing with Theon that frustrates me is that 
he wasn't born a monster like Joffrey. He wasn't like mm-hmm. Ramsay Snow. I mean, he was brought up in a loving family. Regardless of the fact whether you want to label him as a hostage or not, you wouldn't have noticed it. Yeah. I mean, they're not the type of hostages I see roaming around no. and, you know, <laughs> being able to freely do whatever you want. I mean, he wasn't, wasn't a hostage at all, really, by the time you see him in, um, at Winterfell. I mean, Rob sends him away, I think, in the sake, to go to the Iron Islands and receive help. I just think that that's what frustrates me. Um, he he, he recognises this later, but he chose the wrong family. Yeah. He had yeah. a family and he lost it. And it's just this con- constant sense of belonging. I mean, you know, as you said, he did kick Winterfell when it was down. And Yara enunciates as much. She says, oh, you know, which one put up a better fight? Was it the six-year-old or the crippled boy? Yeah. I mean, come on. It's, it's, it's just such a fair point. Um, the but you know, and she she's quite, she's equally like we are condemning his actions, saying yeah. you know you you butchered children for treachery. I mean, for goodness sake, they were more valuable alive than dead. There oh, were yeah. so many reasons not to do it. And obviously, we know that he didn't, but it's the perception, and it's going to get out there that Bran and Rickon would have been hung. I mean, she says that uh, they've been uh, killed. She <laughs> says every man in the north wants your head. And he doesn't recognise it. And he, as you said, he's just too consumed with this idea of power. You know, Palpatine would say as much, wouldn't he? Power, yeah. ultimate power, etc., etc. Et <laughs> um, and it's just that that's the one scene that you think that really could have changed. If Theon had left with Yara, he would have he would have survived. But he didn't. He was just consumed by this lust for power. And I really, I, I do have absolute no sympathy for him whatsoever. And contrasting to you, he deserves a lot of the punishment he got in season three, to be honest. Sure, he deserves I mean, to be punished, but... I just don't... The sympathy that I, I have ha, that I would have had for him was lost. He was brought up in a loving family. I mean, you have to, you have to admit, Dominic, in comparison oh, yeah. to, say, Tyrion, who was ostracised when he was a child, whose father hates him, wishes he you know, sees him as this snideful little creature who wished had died, who'd killed his mother. Cersei despises him. And yet he grows up to be a witful, cunning, and, 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 and quite a lovable character. Yeah. And then with Theon, he's had the opportunity. He could have been, as you said, on the council of Rob Stark at King's Landing or in the Dominion of the North. And he lost that. And he purposely sabotaged Rob's campaign and he lost his family. Um, and so, I granted, I will admit that there were extreme measures taken in the torture scenes, but... I, I I just think that with Theon Greyjoy, I, the little sympathy resides in him. And again, it's not it's not me glambasting the portrayal of the character. It's just oh, yeah. the character yeah. itself. Yeah. Al, 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 yeah. him magnificently. But yeah. I just think, uh, you know, from the audience perspective, I just think that Theon is one of those... I mean, I can remember by the end of season two, I think it was really between him and Joffrey vying for that top <laughs> spot of the most hated characters in Westeros. I don't know if you would necessarily agree with that at the time. No, yeah, sure. For sure, I, I yeah, I think they are definitely. He's up there as one of those characters that you, yeah, you you just can't you can't love. <laughs> he's, a, he's a he's a bad dude, um, but I I think sort of the the, the what we're going to find is, is the tragedy of, of Theon is that he's not going to have uh, any kind of redemption story. It, it, it's almost like it's too late for him because his chances for redemption really uh, died with rob uh, unless he can he can do something something later 
that will 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 help. But it it seems like his he, his chances to redeem himself are gone as well, which I which I think is sort of the tragic part of his character. Um, but I, I agree, yeah, he's he's it's absolutely despicable character, and and like you said, Alfie Allen just knocks it out of the park. You know, it's 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 one thing to play a character that everybody loves; it's another thing to play a character that everybody hates, and and just hit people like him and and Jack Gleason who does Joffrey. I mean, they, those guys, it's just fantastic the way they are able to you know just make everybody hate them which you know is a challenge you know you know most people don't want to be hated but those guys are able to they they embrace the challenge and they they turn in these stellar stellar performances yeah i'll definitely say it's admirable because as well not just the fact that they're hated characters but they could be typecast in that way so when it comes to the opportunity to acquire future projects it can become difficult. I mean, look at, uh, you know, Mark Hamill was probably a case in point. I mean, he wasn't a villain necessarily, but um, people view him as, as synonymous with Luke Skywalker. Mm-hmm. I think people will possibly view Jack Gleason as synonymous with Joffrey. Yeah. You see where I'm coming from there. Oh, yeah. So sure. it really is, uh, as you said, they definitely knocked it out of the park. Yeah. Uh, one, one last thing I want to bring up quickly in Winterfell before we uh, before we wrap up is, uh, is the... Um, the relationship between Osha, Asha, and uh, and Bran and Rickon, because we see her. She 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 arrives in season one as just kind of this wildling from beyond the wall who attacks Bran, and is has her life be spared by Rob, and so she goes from you know wanting to 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 basically kill or at least you know do horrible things to Bran to serving him without question and and. You know, to basically living her entire life for him and Rickon, and I, I'm curious as to to what you think and think uh, why she she would make that decision. I think that she does care for him. Really, I think part of it is linked to the fact that he is a youngster, a child, and mm-hmm. she wants to protect him. And she has been treated pretty well by the Starks as well. Yeah. So. There, she, 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 she. There's just a close bond really begins to develop between the children and her, and and she keeps calling them her little lords. You know, I mean, she does want to safeguard them from this danger and jeopardy, and I think she recognizes too that there's something special in Bran. Yeah, particularly related to the visions. Mm-hmm. She never openly states it, and she never wants to openly express that Bran has. Magic powers, as it were, with a lack of a better term. Well, but they are. <laughs> but there are, and and and, and you can see in her face uh, in those scenes that uh, she'll kind of look away a little bit, or or she'll she'll try to hide her, her her true emotions and true feelings. Yeah, and 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 then just disguises it with you know her expression of oh well, it was only a dream. You know, people have dreams all the time, but you know she's witnessed. The moment when Bran said he he saw his father in the tombs yeah. of Winterfell, yeah. oh, behold, he dies, and also that there would be this great sea, which would encapsulate Winterfell, which would enclose Winterfell, and again, what are the Iron Islanders synonymous with? The sea. So you know, there are clear parallels between what Baron Bar- Baron Baron what Bran <laughs> sees in his visions and what genuinely legitimately occurs in Westeros. So she recognizes there's some special powers and I think that would also fuel her 
mind to want to safeguard and, and protect him. And obviously she makes a vow at the end. Well, not necessarily a vow in the but same way that Rob did to to Cat, but she promised Maester Lewin yeah. that she would watch out for them. So yeah. but would you see, offer see, similar I, sentiments or do you have yeah. a different argument you want to put up? See, I, I think she's kind of like the opposite of, of Theon. Is like Theon was, was brought in... But you know she has a similar story to Theon, but she took the this, the other path, you know, because they mm. they were both brought in under less than ideal circumstances into the uh, into the the guard or the um, the under the under the protection or they become wards of the Starks basically, and and you know they, that happens because they come from less than ideal situations with with. With, with Asha, it's coming from beyond the wall and being captured by Rob with, with Theonis because of the actions of his father. And so so that happens. And then we see them sort of – they're treated fairly by the Starks. And then they have to ultimately choose if they're going to remain loyal to the Starks. And we see that Osha, she, she sticks with them. She she goes with Bran and she and she becomes – their protectors, and and I think you bring up some good points about you know she she wants she's become endeared to them and and she wants to protect them because they're young and she she recognizes that there's something important about Bran, uh, but at the same time it, you know she does ultimately make that decision to stay with these people that have treated her well, whereas Theon makes the opposite decision he he decides to not stay with the people that have treated him well and basically goes and and screws himself basically <laughs> screws himself mm-hmm. up. Uh, and so, so I, I thought that was interesting, but it, it, it it's funny to 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 think, you know, like that that could have ultimately have been, you know, Theon's path is to have, if he had have stayed with with the Starks, and and who knows what that could have entailed for him. But I just thought that there's some interesting parallels between the two of them, and that it is sort of like they came to that fork in the road, and they each went in opposite directions, and. Well, to be honest, it doesn't really work out all too great for either of them, you know? I mean, we don't really know what's happened to, to Asha and, and Rickon, but we assume they're still on the run, and hopefully we'll find out in Season 5, but uh, but who knows? Who knows? Uh, anyways, is there anything else you want to bring up about these episodes, or shall we move on to quotes? Nope. Let's move on to quotes, I all believe. Right. Move on to quotes. So uh, as, as this is the part of the show where we pick out some of our favorite favorite lines of dialogue spoken by the characters in these episodes and just uh, shine the spotlight on them. Cause there really is some great dialogue in the show. There's some, some, some really good, good lines. And so uh, I'll throw it over to you first. Are you, are you ready? Can you, uh, have you got a quote ready to go? I have indeed. And Excellent. it's in the first episode that we've discussed here, the old gods and the new, mm-hmm. and it's about in Tywin's camp when he's lambasting his captain for his ineptitude and, and he tells Arya to pick up a book, and she does. And he says, "My cup bearer can read better than you can." <laughs> yeah. Well, oh, that's just uh, makes me laugh. That just to think Tywin as uh, <laughs> lambasting his so-called competent general yeah. um, for not being able to read, which we take for granted. You could argue in this society. Yeah. But I'll throw it over to you, Dominic. What's one of your favorite quotes? Well, I'll go with a quote from uh, from Tywin's son, Jaime. Uh, it's from from that scene we were talking about just a few minutes ago, uh, where where Jamie is in the pen with uh, with his cousin, and uh, and Jamie says, uh, "It's a good thing I am who I am. I don't think I'd be good at anything else." <laughs> I thought that was just such a a great sort of overconfident line from 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 the Kingslayer. Uh, so I'll throw it back over to you. Do you have another one? 
Um, another one. Um, I am. I am. I'm looking through the many quotes I have here, so I'm going to throw it back to you first while I'm okay. just prepping myself. Well, I've, I've got another one. It's from the same episode. It's just a little exchange between uh, Brienne and uh, and uh, and one of the Stark men. Um, the, the Stark man says says to Brienne, "Keep your hands off of me, woman." And she replies, "Do not enter without permission, man." And I, I thought that was a, a really smart line because you know, quite often in these shows we hear. The, the male characters referring to the female characters as woman, you know, you know, get away from me, oh, woman, yeah. and, and, and all that. And so to have Brienne sort of turn that around on this guy, I thought was a, a very uh, clever and hilarious line. Oh, yes, yeah, so I would definitely agree. Um, and the one that I do like, actually, is the in the one in Prince of Winterfell when Varys and, and um, Tyrion are talking about the gods. And he says that... Uh, you know, you've got the god of fire, the god of, I don't know, um, god of death. Why don't we just have, a god, why are the gods such vicious cunts? <laughs> why, why can't there be a god of tits and wine? I thought that just epitomizes. Classic Tyrion. Tyrion there, doesn't yeah. it? Does it not? Good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so before we, um, before we do final thoughts <laughs> and, uh, and all that, um, I do want to to mention something that we do have a bit of a, an announcement regarding sort of programming for the next next month or so. Ba- basically, um, we've we've come to sort of a point here where the next month um, we, we we feel at least I, I definitely feel that the next month I'm going to be extremely busy and I don't feel that I'll be able to commit the time that I want to and that I should in order to be producing these these shows and, and getting these shows out to you guys in a in a timely not only in a timely manner but with having you know watch the episodes properly and, and, and digested them and and really ha- be ready to uh to talk about them and so um what we're going to do is is we're basically going to take march off and i know it's it's, it's bad form to to, t- to go on hiatus uh so early on in in the show's run but we're, we're I just feel that in order to do the best shows that we can, uh, it requires taking a little bit of time off. And, and so we're, we're going to take, uh, take March off and we're going to come back a week before the, before season five premieres. And we're going to, we're going to do a, a preview show for season five and then we'll continue. We'll go weekly for the 10 weeks that season, uh, the season five is on and we're going and we'll review each episode as it's released. It will have a lot of fun doing that. Um, and then once season five is over, we will come back to doing these these uh, uh, rewatch throughs or this watch through, this revisiting of the past seasons. And uh, you know, we'll, we'll go on sort of a we'll, we'll decide as we'll decide uh, you know when we get there what kind of schedule we'll, we'll be going on. It'll probably be a, a, a every other week kind of situation, maybe a monthly thing. Uh, but but just uh, right now. Um, I, I know I'm at a point in my life where it's just a little bit too much going on that I can't devote the amount of time to everything that I would like to. And, and unfortunately, um, this is sort of the, the show that's going to wind up um, having to having to take a break for the time being. And so, uh, I, again, I apologize to, to everybody um, that we're going to have to do this break. But we will be back, uh, I guess, the first week of April. Um, so we'll just be gone for 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 a month. It won't be a it won't be a super long break, but we'll we'll be back uh, in time to talk about all about season five. And like I said, we're going to have a ton of fun 
when we get there. Absolutely. And I'd, I'd also just like to echo the sentiments that you've just raised there, Dominic. It is a decision that we both came to agree upon. And I think that it is the right one. As we said, we want to make sure it's committed. We put the time in and put the right effort into this podcast. So in that sense, better to put out better quality than rush content. So I think that you'll all look forward to going back to season five, no doubt, because season five is going to be amazing for what we've seen in the trailers. Yeah. We've, just as we're so recording definitely this. stick around for that. I think yeah. that is the important part. That's the part we wanted to get down. I mean, trying to do the reviews is fantastic, and we've got through two seasons, which is great in yeah. a period of four weeks. Um, but ultimately, we're looking forward to starting season five, as many of you are, and that's the important point. That's the important part that we want to concentrate on. Yes, yes, exactly. And and just just we should just mention, as we're recording this, uh, just before we, we recorded this, uh, two new previews for season five were released, and they're on the, the Game of Thrones Facebook page, the official one, and... We highly recommend watching them because they are awesome and extremely tantalizing. And, and it's just something to look forward to when the show comes back. And when the show comes back, uh, we'll be back to review all those episodes as they come out. So with that in mind, uh, we should wrap up season two with, uh, with final thoughts on the last five episodes. So Kieran, final thoughts on Game of Thrones season, two, season two, episodes six through ten. Absolutely fantastic ending to season two. We had the epic, epic conclusion to the fight, well, to the battle with the Baratheons and the Lannisters. And the Lannisters emerged victorious. And it means Tywin gets a seat as on the council was handed the king. And we have so many more great episodes to look forward to. We have the continuation of Theon Greyjoy's story in Winterfell. And of course, we're going to look forward to seeing the repercussions of his actions in season three. At least I am, anyway. Mm-hmm. And then we've obviously got the the wall and a return of the White Walkers and yeah. John and he, with his first encounter with Egret and their soon-to-be relationship beginning to blossom, as it were. And, of course, don't forget that final scene right at the end of episode 10 when Sam is behind the rock and you've got the army of White Walkers all converging on the wall so it's uh, it really is I was going to say heating up but that's not very appropriate when winter's <laughs> coming is it so it's really cooling up and it makes sense either no. so we'll just say that it's gearing up to yeah. something bigger that's the right word to use so um, some really really good stuff in these episodes and the score has been fantastic as well particularly that final scene with Theon um, showcasing exhibiting those two dead bodies the score was absolutely fantastic and the cast members as well they've always done their fantastic job and they really should get the praise they deserve because once to, you know to say that uh, sean bean had left the show in episode nine people were concerned i wouldn't want to say rightly so but there were legitimate concerns that maybe the show wouldn't work as well but in fact it gets better and better from that so and a lot of the kudos goes to the people working behind the scenes, the obviously material by George R. R. Martin and all of the cast members who partake. So, Dominic, over to you. Final thoughts for season two. Yeah, some huge episodes. I, I know we say that every week, but th- that's the thing about this show. Every episode is huge and so much is going on. Uh, like you said, it was great to see sort of some some semblance of, of conclusion to, to the uh, 
to the war, at least between the uh, the Lannisters and the Baratheons, and just a phenomenally, a visually, visually phenomenal sequence there in the Battle, Battle of Blackwater Bay. And also just uh, some really great character moments for, for all the other characters, for Rob and Catelyn and, and, and even, even Jamie Lannister, as well as Jon Snow and, and you know, getting introduced to Egret. Uh, was was really was really fantastic as well, and of course everything going on in Winterfell, uh, there's so it sets up so much great stuff, and uh, like you said, some really really great episodes. So that is going to wrap it up for us for this uh, this episode. Uh, thank you everybody for listening. Kieran, do you want to let the people know what is coming up on Expression FM this week? I do, I do indeed, Dominic. So Expression FM is really, really gearing up now for its big, big charity event. I've got one happening at the end of this show, which is why I'm having to swiftly depart in a few minutes, <laughs> um, with which we're doing some karaoke event, which will be a great deal of fun. But it's all about gearing up towards our big charity event on Sunday the 15th of March. It's the charity match, a football match between Expression Sport Pundits and the Beanox of the university. To those who do not know what that means, that's big name on campus. And I don't know really how we classify that, but <laughs> they just get the big names apparently. I, I will admit, I've not heard of most of those people. But anyway, that's besides the point. Um, it's going to be it's going to be a great laugh though and we have the regular sports shows going on I will be on finally I'll be on the Tuesday night sport episode I haven't been on that in a while which takes place next Tuesday from about 8pm till 10pm GMT time so that's around 3 to 5pm for um, EST time as it were so please do please do listen in and we encourage everyone to support us our big charity organisation is called the Stadham the Stadham, oh sorry, let me get that right. The Adam Stansfield Foundation. It's a great association dedicated to, uh, in memory to one of the most loyal and dedicated fans of Exeter FC. And we really would appreciate any of the donations that you can that you can bestow upon us. It really would be appreciated. How, how can people and, uh, donate? And you can, and you, and you can find that out on my Facebook page, but there is a website here, which I am just about to read out. And it is http i don't need to put that just put it in your search bar m.virginmoneygiving.com forward slash dot 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 forward slash show fundraiser profile page and if you want to know more about it then please either message me um i can also just post it on our page on the watches of westeros genuinely any donations is really appreciated we're targeting a thousand pounds um, I don't know how much that is in dollars, but uh, we've raised about £200 so far, and that's a couple of weeks before we officially kick off our awesome. match. So oh, genuinely, great. we look forward to all the, all everyone's help, really. It's so appreciated. Yeah. Um, so that's my roundup of what's happening with Expression. Yeah. And so, Dominic, over to you well, with your thoughts. Well, your thoughts, your yeah. disclosure <laughs> of the Star Wars Underworld. Well, I was just going to say, uh, what's the link to uh, to listen to Expression? The link to listen to it, I always forget that part. <laughs> the link to listen to it is www.expression.fm and that's our website. Once you log on to that, follow the instructions, simple enough, and you can get involved on Twitter. At ExpressionFM is our Twitter handle. And thank goodness I have a co-host because I'd always forget <laughs> to tell you how to tune in. But there you go. I now will pass you over to Dominic. Yes. And remind yes. him to tell you about the email address <laughs> and other contact details of the Star Wars Underworld. Yes, and, and everybody do uh, do uh, do donate to that charity. It's it's phenomenal stuff. Uh, they do good work. Um, I, I 
uh, yes, as, as Kieran mentioned, uh, Star Wars Underworld podcast will be continuing, uh, as it'll be as, as usual recorded live Thursday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern on channel 1138.com and then released on Fridays, uh, to starwarsunderworld.com and to the iTunes feed. So just search for Star Wars Underworld on iTunes and you will be able to find it there. And we've got some good stuff coming up. We've got the end of season one of Star Wars Rebels. Uh, the finale is, is on the Monday as, of, as Monday, March 2nd, as, of, which is very soon as we record this. And so we're both looking forward to that. And then of course there'll be some good, other good stuff coming up as, uh, as there's also a big novel release of Star Wars Heir to the Jedi by Kevin Hearn and, and just some, some great stuff that will be going on over there. So you don't want to miss it. Like I said, Thursday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern, channel1138.com or the following day or any other time on StarWarsUnderworld.com and the iTunes feed. And uh, if you want more of, of Kieran and I talking about TV or, well, specifically talking Star Wars, The Clone Wars, be sure to check out The Clone Wars Strikes Back. We just dropped a new episode uh, talking about the Reiko Hardeen arc from season four of the clone wars and uh and yes the clone wars strikes back will be continuing in uh in march we're going to try and keep that to its its regular schedule so expect two episodes of that so if you miss us uh well this is the perfect time to get into clone wars and uh and, and you can listen to uh some episodes over there because we got some big stuff coming up we got the return of darth maul and uh and some episodes that may wind up tying into the current star wars rebels series uh, as well so don't want to miss that uh, again, go to StarWarsUnderworld.com, click on podca- uh, click on The Clone Wars Strikes Back over there. And you can also find that on the Star Wars Underworld iTunes feed as well. You get two shows for the price of one over there, and that price is absolutely free. I uh, also want to remind you, check out our Facebook fa- page, Facebook.com slash Watchers, uh, or Watchers of Westeros. Uh, you can, uh, there you'll find uh, find links to, to what Kieran was talking about, as well as, uh, as well as all of our episodes and some Game of Thrones updates. Uh, we'll be. Uh, I'm going to try and keep the Facebook page going during our our hiatus, but uh, uh, we'll see. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Watcher Westeros. Again, that way you never miss an episode. Uh, you can follow me personally at Dominic J25. You follow Kieran at C Duggan Six, uh, and do that, and that way you will never never miss an episode uh, of Watchers Westeros. You'll know when we're back uh, as soon as as soon as it happens. Uh, also. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes. I, uh, just search Watchers of Westeros, and if you have time, leave us a review. We'd really appreciate it. Um, again, you'll never miss an episode that way. So thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll see you in, we'll see you in April for the Watchers of Westeros. I'm Dominic. I'm Kieran. And remember, until next time, fuck the king!